This morning I'd like to share with you the topic of does your worship have some holes in it? Worship. That's a term that we've used. We've used it even this morning already a number of times. It's a part of our church vocabulary. And yet, do we really know what it means? More importantly, we want to ask ourselves this morning, do we really worship? Rick Warren in his book, The Purpose Driven Life, says, anything you do that brings pleasure to God is an act of worship. Now, remember that definition isn't anything that I do that I think God ought to be pleased with, but things that I do that God indeed is pleased with. Why do we worship? Many times we think of worship as we go to worship to get what we want out of the experience. But our primary purpose in worship is that God gets something out of this. Have you, have you thought about that this morning as you've come to worship? What is God getting out of me this morning? What, what kind of response, what kind of attitude, what kind of, of anthem am I lifting up? And until God gets something out of our worship, we never will. Until God is blessed by our worship, we won't be blessed. All too often we treat worship as something that is there to entertain us, to, to you know, give us a pleasurable, pleasurable experience uh, at the beginning uh, of the week. Uh, but it isn't. That isn't what worship is about. What is most important is that God enjoys this time of worship. We are here to worship Him. We are here to bless His name. Now we may benefit from participating in worship. We may enjoy participating in worship. And I hope that we do. But it's not for us. Worship is for God and for God alone. So the question should not be, what do I get out of worship? But rather, rather what can I give to God? When we try to worship God with an attitude that's all about us, we find ourselves focusing on the music, on who's up front, on who's preaching this morning. Louis Giglio said this, Most of my life I thought that you went to church to worship. But now I see that the better approach is to go worshiping to church. There was a sitcom TV program that had a little scene and, and it had a, a pastor uh, standing up in front of his, uh, his congregation there. There was a fairly large auditorium, but there were only four people there for the service. And he looks all over there, the, the congregation, there was one young guy and three elderly women. And the minister began to speak and he said, I give thanks to God that there are at least a handful of us who have made the effort to come to worship, who have come to feed on the word of God, and who don't believe that God is less important than the football game on television tonight. 
And suddenly the young man in the back jumped up and he said, oh no, I forgot about the game, and he runs out. <laughs> Let me ask you, why are you here today? Is worship really a top priority in your life? Or are you here this morning because there's nowhere else to go? Or there's just something that I'm expected to do? And so I go to church on Sunday morning. What if every Sunday we had a drawing for a new car? <laughs> you, you've seen the, the publisher clearinghouse sweepstakes, uh, you know, a million dollars for life or whatever they're offering this week or this month. What if, what if every, every Sunday in, in this next church year, we, you, you got to put in a chance for just out of our congregation, someone would win a million dollars for life. Think it might affect our attendance next year? <laughs> you think you might invite someone to come and be a part of that? Suppose we packed out this church every service and had to add services because of that. But just because we packed it out doesn't mean we worshiped. There's a huge difference between attending church and coming and worshiping. What are some things that hinder us from worship? We're going to just look at a couple holes uh, that are in our worship sometimes. One of them is a wrong focus. What is our attitude in worship? There was a fascinating study by a professor at Northwestern University, and she studied an Olympic medalist uh, and discovered in her study that bronze medalists were much happier with their medal than were silver medalists. Why? But she found out that silver medalists tend to focus on the fact that they miss getting the gold medal by just this much. And bronze medalists focused on the fact that, that if it was just that much less, they would have not got any medals at all. And so the silver medalists were just kind of like that girl that won a silver medal there, kind of pouting about the fact that, that she didn't get gold, uh, while the bronze were just so happy that they were on the podium to receive a medal. I think it's a fascinating study of, of human nature. Our focus determines our reality. How we feel really isn't determined by our circumstances. If that were the case, the silver medalist would be much happier than the bronze medalist. It's what we are focused on. How we feel isn't determined by circumstances, it's determined by our focus. Here's another way of saying it. Your internal attitude is more important than your external circumstances. Think about that. Your internal attitude is much more important than the circumstances that you are facing at any given moment. And so a worshiper makes a predecision to look for something to praise God about, even in the direst of circumstances. Let's look at Acts 16 as exhibit A of this. In Acts 16, Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi. 
I encourage you to read the whole chapter and get the whole context, but I'll set it up by saying this, that Paul had cast out, <coughs> had cast out a demon of a young girl that was a fortune teller. And she had her abilities because she was demon-possessed. And he cast this demon out of her, and her slave owner, the owner of her, was very unhappy because he had a very lucrative business of having her tell the future for somebody. And Paul and Silas, as a result of that, are arrested. And it says in Acts 16, a mob quickly formed against Paul and Silas, and the city officials ordered them stripped and beaten with wooden rods. They were severely beaten, and, when, and then they were thrown into prison. The jailer was ordered to make sure they didn't escape, so he took no chances, but put them into the inner dungeon and clamped their feet in the stocks. We read a story like this, and it's hard to put ourselves in their shoes. Uh, I've had bad days before, but none of them have been like this. <clears throat> you remember the, the, the kid story, Alexander and the horrible, terrible, no good, very bad day. Well, this was Paul and Silas's uh, horrible, terrible, no good, very bad day. And Paul and Silas were emotionally, physically, spiritually spent as they find themselves locked down, drained to the last drop, nothing left to give. Their backs are bleeding from the beating that they had received. They're probably black and blue all over from the way they've been roughed up. And to top it all off, they're in maximum security. They're locked down in stocks uh, so they can't even scratch their nose. Just doesn't get a lot worse than that in our lives. And that's why the next verse is so amazing. And in verse 25 it says, around midnight Paul and Silas were complaining about their circumstances. Doesn't? No. That's a personal translation. Here's what it really says. Around midnight Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the other per prisoners were listening. When we get into an emotional or spiritual slump, it's usually because we've zoomed in on a problem. We're fixating on what is wrong. And nine times out of ten, the solution is zooming out, get perspective, to look at the big picture. So how do we zoom out when we find ourselves zooming in, fixating, uh, and becoming negative? How do we zoom out? Let me give you one word. Worship. Worship is, is literally taking our eyes off of the external circumstances and focusing on God. We stop focusing on what is wrong. We stop focusing on our circumstances. And we start focusing on what is right with God. Paul and Silas could have zoomed in and complained about their circumstances. They certainly had enough to complain about. They could have said, God, we were out there casting out demons, uh, and this is what we get. We're on a missionary journey, and we're beaten and thrown in jail. And instead of watching our back, Lord, our backs are beaten and bleeding. They could have complained till the cows come home, but 
they made a choice to worship God in spite of the external circumstances. Here's what worship does, true worship. True worship restores our spiritual equilibrium. It helps us to regain perspective. It enables us to find something right to praise God about, uh, even when it seems like everything is wrong. Worship is zooming out and really seeing the big picture of what life is all about. It's refocusing on the fact that 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on a cross uh, to pay a penalty for my sin. It's refocusing on the fact that Jesus loves me when I least deserve it. It's refocusing on the fact that God is going to get me where God wants me to be. It's refocusing on the fact that I have eternity with God to look forward to in a place where there'll be no more mourning, no more suffering, no more pain, no more sin. And is it easy to do that? I'll say absolutely not. It's not easy to turn away from our problem and focus on God. In a way, nothing is more difficult than praising God when everything seems to be going wrong. But one of the purest forms of worship is praising God when I don't even feel like it. Because it shows God that my worship is not based on circumstance. It's easy to praise God when we come in here this morning and everything's going good in life and life couldn't be better. It's easy to praise God. But to praise God when it hurts and pain is in our life and, and it seems like there's so much brokenness and God, where are you? To praise Him and look at the big picture. God is still God. He is still the Redeemer and Savior. He is still the God that is sending His Son back one day and is going to take me to be with Him forever and ever. Worship is based on the character of God. Viktor Frankl, Frankl was a Holocaust survivor who experienced the Nazi concentration camps and he wrote about it in his book, Man's Search. Everything was taken from these prisoners. Their clothing, their family, their pictures, their personal belongings. They even took away their names. They just had a number. Frankl's was 119104. Everything is taken away except one thing, Frankel said. He said, everything can be taken from a man but one thing. The last of human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances. You have the right to choose whatever attitude you want to respond to whatever circumstance you face. It's not that I have to be angry. It's not that I have to be disappointed. It's not that I have to be resentful. I choose to do those things. I can choose to praise God in the midst of, of disappointment. I'm absolutely convinced that the most important choice we make every day is our attitude. Our internal attitudes are more important than any external circumstance that you will face this week. The outcome of your life is determined by your outlook on life. If you have a critical or complaining spirit, you'll complain till the day you die. 
Your life will get worse and worse because you're just accumulating more and more negative experiences. But if you have a worshipful spirit, life gets better and better no matter what the circumstances are. Why? Because at the end of the day, one way or the other, your focus, your attitude, determines your reality. Paul and Silas were in prison. Their bodies were chained. But you can't chain the human spirit. And that's what Frankel discovered in the concentration camp. And that's what Paul and Silas uh, modeled for us 2,000 years ago. They were chained uh, in their body, but their spirits uh, soared. They praised God, even there, at the top of their voices. And they, they chose to worship. And it set off a chain reaction. I don't think Paul and Silas were planning a miraculous uh, jailbreak. But to make the long story short, there was an earthquake at that very moment. And, uh, and we find that, that they, the prisoners were set free from their shackles, and yet none of them ran off. Uh, and the jailer who was about to kill himself, because in those days, if anyone escaped, the jailer assumed those punishments and could be killed. And so he was going to just commit suicide, and Paul stopped him. And in the end, he was saved and his whole family and him were baptized in the middle of that night. Now, you can't really script those kind of things. And you can't plan a miracle. But when you worship God in the worst of circumstance, you'll never know what's going to happen. Worship sets the stage for miracles to happen. Worship causes spiritual earthquakes that can change the topography of your life. Worship is shifting the tectonic plates of your life. It may not change your circumstances, but it will change your life. Paul gives us some priceless advice in Philippians chapter 4. It's a list of eight premeditated, premeditated cognitive commitments. Do this, he says. Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely... Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on those things. Dwell on that, he is saying. A worshiper always finds something to praise God for because they're looking for something to praise God for. If you find yourself complaining about your circumstances, your very complaints begin to chain you and imprison you. Worship is the way out. It was worship that set Paul and Silas free physically. And worship will set us free emotionally and spiritually. Worship sets off a chain reaction that causes prison doors to fly open and chains to break us free. God help us to have the right focus. Another thing that keeps us from worshiping the way God wants us to is the fear of looking foolish. You ever been afraid of looking foolish? For what it's worth, there's a poll after poll that shows that the number one fear that people have is the fear of public speaking. The second highest on the poll is the fear of death. 
So I guess it is that people would rather speak than die. <laughs> die rather die than speak is what I say. I'm up here, I'm a little scared. <laughs> what 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 is that telling us about human nature? The fear of looking foolish. It, 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 it's the curse of self-consciousness. It's the fear of foolishness that keeps us as a fourth grader from raising our hand and, 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 and giving an answer because we're afraid we'll be wrong and everybody will laugh. It's the fear of foolishness that keeps us from asking that person for a date because what if they say no and so we just back away. It's the fear of foolishness that keeps me locked in a job that I don't like when I'm just afraid I won't be successful if I do something else. It's a fear of foolishness that keeps me from praying for God to work a miracle in my life. It's the fear of foolishness that keeps me from sharing my faith with that person at work that so desperately needs to hear about Christ. It's the fear of foolishness that keeps me from worshiping the way that I could and the way that I should. In a way, a definition of faith could be a willingness to look foolish. Noah looked foolish building an ark in a place where there was no water. Sarah looked foolish as she was out buying maternity clothes at the age of 90. The Israelites looked foolish as day after day they marched around in silence around the city of Jericho. And the people on the walls looking down say, what are these lunatics doing? David looked foolish as a young boy going up against a nine-foot giant who was armored to the teeth with a little slingshot and a couple stones. The wise men looked foolish as they set off following a star to who knows where. Peter looked foolish stepping out of the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee in the middle of the night. Jesus looked foolish at the end of his life hanging naked on a cross. But that's faith. Faith is the willingness to look foolish. And the results uh, of each of these speak for themselves. Noah, after having built the ark and preached the message of God's love, ended up saving himself and his whole family. Sarah gave birth to a son at 90 years old who was the pathway to the Messiah who was to come. The walls of Jericho on that seventh day came tumbling down and they went in and possessed the city. David stood up to that Goliath and he conquered not only that Goliath but the whole of the nation of the Philistines. Uh, the wise men who traveled for we don't know how long, but a long time, finally were there to worship uh, the Messiah, the Son of God. Peter, who stepped out of that boat into the water in the middle of the night, uh, in the middle of the storm, walked on water. Jesus, who hung on the cross, naked, dying for us, rose again triumphant, victorious, and sits at the right hand of his Father. Worship 
sometimes means we look foolish. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, there's kind of a microcosm of this truth. It's one incident that reveals why God used David, I think, so much in his life. David had just been crowned king of Israel. He had defeated the Philistines. He had recaptured the fortress of Jerusalem's Mount Zion. And he was now bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Mount Zion, to the place where God wanted it to sit. And all that is to say, this was the greatest day of David's life. This shepherd boy that was king and was bringing the, the people into an age of greatness. And in 2 Samuel 6.16 it says, But as the ark of the Lord entered the city of David, Michael the daughter of Saul looked down from her window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she was filled with contempt for him. Let's make an observation. When you get excited about God... Don't expect everybody to get excited about your excitement. Okay? Michael, his wife, the daughter of the former King Saul, was dripping with sarcasm. And she says to him as he returns home to bless his family, she says, you are the king of Israel. You have really brought honor to yourself today, haven't you? You have gone around half-naked right in front of the female slaves of your officials. You acted like a fool. Here's what impresses me about David. He wasn't afraid to look foolish. He wasn't afraid uh, to put aside his royal robes uh, and dance without any hindrances before Almighty God. Think about the circumstances. David, as I said, was the newly crowned king uh, I'm sure there was added pressure on him. You need to look like a king. He had a reputation to establish and protect. He had a crown that he represented. Kings dull to take off their royal robes and dance out in front of everybody. Maybe a shepherd boy, but not a king. And no one knew that better than his wife, Michael. She was a king's kid. She had grown up in the palace. She knew the protocol. And I'm guessing that her father, Saul, was very kingly. He became very egocentric and arrogant in his reign, even though he came from humble beginnings. Saul was all about pomp and circumstance. And so these royal robes uh, symbolized uh, David's identity. It symbolized his security. It identified him in his position as king. Uh, but David didn't find his identity in that. He found his identity in God. Read the Psalms. Y'all through the Psalms, David says, The Lord is my refuge. The Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is my shield. Uh, the Lord is my fortress. David wasn't afraid of looking foolish. David retorted to, to Michael, I was dancing before the Lord, who chose me above your father and all his family. 
He appointed me as leader of Israel, the people of the Lord, so I celebrate before the Lord. Yes, I am willing to look even more foolish than this, even to be humiliated in my own eyes. Saying I'm willing to act like a fool in order to show my joy for the Lord. And I'm willing to even act more foolish. One of the words for worship in the Hebrew language is the word halal. And one of the definitions is to be clamorously foolish. Clamorously foolish. In other words, if you aren't willing to look foolish, can you really worship? Remember, the, the, the definition of worship that we started out, the things that please God. And if we're afraid to be this, we're going to maybe be afraid to do the things that please God. On a human plane, worship is kind of foolish in itself. Singing to someone you can't see, raising your hand to someone you can't touch. But stop and think about it. Have you ever pulled up to a stoplight and looked next to the car next to you and there's someone bebopping, just going to town? You know, the whole car is shaking. And you're like, boy, what a fool. Why is it foolish? It's foolish because you can't hear the music. The old proverb says, those who hear not the music think the dancer is mad. And that's what's happening here in 2 Samuel 6. <coughs> David hears the music, and Michael doesn't. And so, who's crazy? All I know is, if we have the, sound, the, the ability to hear the sound of heaven, we hear the angels lift up Christ. We hear the sounds of heaven, and our heart joins with it. And we want to dance like David danced in some way. David took off his royal robes. That's a picture of worship. Worship is disrobing of our identity and opening ourselves up to who God is. It's a recognition that it's not about what I can do for God. It's not about my royal robes. It's about what God has done. It's about who God is. And we need to care more about what God thinks than what anybody around us may think. Let me put it in, in theological perspective. Back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, it describes what happens a nanosecond after Adam and Eve sinned for the very first time. It says this, At that moment... Their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. What happened here? The moment they sinned, they became self-conscious. If we look at the spiritual life as a continuum, God-consciousness, self-consciousness. Think of spiritual maturity on that continuum. On one side is God consciousness, on the other side is self consciousness. And to become like Christ is to become more God conscious and less self conscious. 
The more I'm thinking about myself, the less I'm thinking about God and what he wants. The more I'm thinking about God, the less I'm conscious of my needs and my wants and my circumstances. The end result is that we lay aside those inhibitions that keep us from being more God-conscious. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says this, Don't be drunk with wine. Instead, let the Holy Spirit fill you and control you. What happens when you get drunk? You ever seen someone drunk? Some people that can be so together lose all their inhibitions, do the craziest things, say the stupidest things. Paul's saying that wine is the wrong way to lose your inhibitions. He said you need to maybe lose your inhibitions, but you lose them by being controlled by the Spirit so that God's controlling you and not your self-consciousness that is controlling you. The Holy Spirit helps us to overcome those things that inhibit us from worshiping as we should. And remember, worship isn't just what we're doing here this morning sitting in church. Worshiping is living in a way that pleases God. So anything that I'm doing that is truly pleasing to God is an act of worship. We are way too preoccupied with ourselves. And that keeps us from worshiping God the way that we should. Eugene Peterson defines worship this way. Worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation <laughs> with ourselves. That's why you're afraid to get up and speak in public. <laughs> Worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves. We as human beings are preoccupied with this, with self. Worship interrupts that. And allows us to have God consciousness. Someone says, you become what you worship. Worship is living in a state of gratitude. Even when we do something wrong, we have something to be grateful for. And that's mercy. Romans 12 says, in view of God's mercy... Offer yourselves as living sacrifice. It doesn't say in view of your righteousness. It doesn't say in view of your brilliant mind or your witty sense of humor. It doesn't say in view of your impeccable spiritual resume. It says in view of God's mercies. Now if you, if you are one that is in need of mercies, what, what's the prerequisite to mercies? What must have happened? You must have done something wrong to have needed mercy. And if you qualify for mercy, then you qualify for worship. Here's my point. Don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what's right with God. Don't let what's wrong with you keep you from worshiping what's right with God. We need to stop focusing on what's wrong with us and start focusing on what's right with God. That's the key to real worship. I like the way the message says it. 
It says embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for him. Embracing what God has done for you is the best thing you can do. That's what pleases God. Here's my paraphrase of it. Therefore, I urge you, fellow Christ followers of Jesus, in view of God's mercies to us, offer him your bodies as living, holy, and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. The King James said, this is your reasonable act of worship. There's nothing more reasonable or logical than worship. If God doesn't exist, then worship is insanity. You're worshiping something that isn't real. But if God exists, then there's nothing more logical or reasonable than of worshiping that one who is sovereign over all. Anything less than all-out worship in that case is illogical, is insanity. Worship is sanity. Anything less is insanity. To think of who God is, if we really had a capability to fully understand who God is, not worshiping would be the most insane thing in the universe. Let me bring it down to a level maybe we can understand. Idolatry is like being offered a filet mignon from Ruth Chris Steakhouse with all the fixings. And you say, no, I'd rather have a McDonald's hamburger and fries. Now that's insane, isn't it? <laughs> that's completely shocking, illogical. Idolatry is settling for a cheap imitation, a substitute, a knockoff. It's settling for something less than the best. It's placing supreme value on that which isn't supreme. In Romans 12, 3, the message says, the only accurate way to understand ourselves is by what God is and by what He does for us. Not by what we are and what we do for Him. Too many of us are gauging who we are by what we've done for Him. The only thing that we have to our credit is what He's done for us. And that's where we need to keep our focus uh, if you are basing your identity on the opinions of other people, then we're worshiping their opinions. God's opinion is the only opinion, opinion that counts. Here's the bottom line. We do become what we worship. If you don't like who you're becoming, you're worshiping the wrong things. Identity problems are worship problems. Start worshiping God, and you'll become the person God created you to be. The message translates part of Romans chapter 12, verse 2 with this, and it kind of sums it up. Fix your attention on God. Fix your focus on God. That's, that's what worship is. In his book, The Air We Breathe, Louis Giglio says, so how do you know what you worship? It's easy. You simply follow the trail of your time, your affection, your money, and your allegiance. And at the end of that trail, you'll find a throne, and whatever or whoever is on that throne is what's of your highest value to you. And on that throne is what you worship. 
who's on that throne in your life? If I really had an audit, an outside objective audit of my time, my affection, my money, my allegiance, where would that trail lead? Would it, oh yeah, God is, God's on the throne there. Or would it be something else? That's what we're asking today. Anything less than enthroning God is a form of idolatry. And it will leave us unfulfilled, unsettled, and unhappy. It'll keep you from becoming the person that God has destined you to be. Giglio goes on to say, Whatever you value most will ultimately determine who you are. If you worship money, you'll become greedy at the core of your heart. If you worship some sinful habit, that same sin will grip your soul and poison your character to death. If you worship stuff, your life will become material, void of eternal significance. If you give all your praise to the God of you, you'll, come, you'll become a disappointing little God to both yourself and all who trust in you. You and I weren't created to worship ourselves. You were wired to worship someone much bigger and so much better than us. Don't settle for anything less. Who are you worshiping this morning? What is it that consumes you? Where's your focus? Are you willing even to be seen as foolish that God would get glory. I don't know what you're facing this week. I don't know what you will encounter. But I'll guarantee you there'll be opportunities for you to worship. And choices will have to be made. And you will have to decide the focus and whether or not you will appear foolish maybe even so that God can get glory. Let us worship this week. Shall we stand? Father God, I don't think any of us here fully comprehend what it is to be completely God conscious. So we're all in that continuum with the tension between ourselves and you. Father, I pray that you will defeat every attempt of Satan to swing the pendulum towards self this week. Help us to be intentional in looking at life and making choices that will make us more in line with who you are and the way that you think. Help us to look for opportunities to lift up your name no matter what the cost may be to us. I pray that you will help us to to truly affect our community, our environment. Lord, go with us and may we worship truly in spirit and in truth. We ask in your name. Amen.